0: Some of y'all might be afraid that I'm standing up here on this day. (laughs) Don't be afraid. There's nothing to fear. Fear not. (laughs) I want to tell y'all that I'm very excited uh, about the word for today. There's a ton of information. I have no idea how it's going to all come together. Um but we're going to be talking about the nativity today. Is that, that's Kelly, she's, okay. <laughs> Kelly has a nativity scene of dinosaurs in her house. Um, where's the easel and stuff like, we'll get that set up in just a second. Um, in all honesty, when we talk about this battle that's kind of seems to be happening between Christmas and the festivals. I just want to put some of that to rest. I have zero against anyone that celebrates Christmas. Some people I think when I go like like I went to Garrett and Elena's house and they had this Kurt Cameron uh video of like, you know, S- Jesus saving Christmas or something like that, like defending Christmas. <laughs> and uh and I gra- and I thought, you know, I thought it was hilarious because the whole premise of the movie is this, uh, this guy who's a real poindexter, I think would be the easiest way to describe him, is trying to say, like, Christmas is really pagan origins. And, and, and then Kirk Cameron being, like, cool and awesome, or, like, comes in and is like, you know, this is really about this. And he, like, saves Christmas by doing that. I don't have anything against anybody that celebrates Christmas, okay? Some of y'all in here are houses that are divided right now because you're trying to understand what to do because uh, one of these guys that gets up here and preaches keeps talking about the festivals and seems to be demonizing Christmas. Uh, and so there, there, there may be people in households, one that says, hey, I want to do the festivals, and the other one says, I want to do Christmas. And so you guys are, are, are maybe talking about that in a very healthy way. I want to encourage you that Lindy and I literally went through the exact same process. The year before we did away with Christmas altogether, we got the biggest tree... We put all the stuff on it and did the presents. And I felt this like thing in my heart where I was torn about what to do. But I was trying to, in faith, go all aboard for Christmas, right? And so this battle, this struggle that, it, that exists, is that Jim? Hey, man, good to see you. This battle, this struggle that exists, it, it's taken us five years, to get to where we're at. So if you're having difficulties in working through things, wherever you land, first off, we love you. The exact same. Wherever you land, okay? Second, if it takes years to get there, be patient and allow the Lord to work these things out. You don't have to have everything together, right? So today what we're going to talk about is just truth. We're just going to break down truth. And There are many people that called up and asked, right? I said this last week, I think, like, are you guys doing any uh, special things or do you have any special Christmas services? And I see big signs up, you know, come to the Christmas service, you know, candlelight special or vigil. (laughs) (laughs) But I see these things and you guys can't, don't forget, I celebrated Christmas for 30 years of my life. Okay. Um, and I'm singing, oh, come let us adore him with everybody else too. In fact, I asked Adam, where's Adam at? Didn't I ask you? I was like, play this song today. And we're going to sing it at the end of this. So I just want to encourage you. I am not against Jesus being born. <laughs> nor am I against truth being proclaimed. Okay. Nor am I against prophecy being fulfilled. Okay. All of those things we share in common. All right? So, no matter where you fall, if you love truth, if you love the idea that God came to earth to dwell among us, if you love the idea of prophecy being fulfilled and supernatural things occurring in the heavens and on earth and the deliverance for all mankind, I celebrate that with you. All right? So, we're all on the same page as far as that's concerned. I just genuinely believe that we are living not just in a society, but in times where the little Lilies and the Caleb's and the Anna's and the Nicholas's and the Louis and the Levi's and the Arias, right? And the Jamarians And, and I, I genuinely believe that they're going to grow up in a world where there will be so much pressing on them that if they come to this place where they have to decide, am I willing to lose that which is most precious to me? Am I willing to suffer slowly over a long, extended period of time to be rejected by friends, to lose jobs, to be alienated? And they have to actually ask themselves, wait a second. Do I believe in my heart of hearts down deep at the deepest part of who I am? Do I believe that I know the truth? I believe in that moment, parents everywhere will wish that they had spent more time investing into their children all of the truth and only the truth, so help you God. This is why I'm so passionate about the festivals. This is why I talk the way that I do. Not because I believe that the Lord's return is billions of years down the road, but because I believe that he's coming soon. And I believe that our children will grow up in a society with lots of persecution for Christians, and that if they don't really believe what they were told to believe, that they will exchange their faith in God in a moment for comfort. Does that make sense? Are we all on the same page? Can y'all see what drives my passion about this? Because when I look back and I see a nativity scene, and I see the magi there, and I see the shepherds, and I see angels humanized with the wings, and they're coming and they're giving gifts, some people see like a precious moments, you know, like set. You remember precious moments <clears throat> and you see it and you're and, and someone else comes along. And you know, the Magi weren't really there at the birth of Jesus. And you're like, who cares? Come on, it's beautiful. And the children, they love it. Right. And it's who cares? Just leave it alone. I genuinely believe that things like and I think a lot of you were on the same track. Right? It's because a lot of people in here don't tell their kids about Santa Claus. Or you say, no, we just tell them the true story about it. And so your mind is working in the same way because you say, I don't want my kids just to live in a fantasy land and think that Santa is bringing them the presents, even though that's what much of society does. Okay? And so you, you, you actually, we're actually all tracking together. Those of you who say, no, Santa was a real person. He's not someone that slips down the chimney. You're motivated by the idea that that's not true and I want to tell my kids the truth. I'm just saying, keep going on that same path all the way, okay? I believe that what we're going to talk about today, once again, is a better story. I believe it's a better story. There's a story that... We see commercialized. I believe that what we're going to talk about, today, and it's all, it's all centered around the birth of Jesus and prophecies being fulfilled and hope coming to the earth. It's, it's, it's all centered around that. And I believe by the end of this, that you'll see, man, the real stuff is better than the other stuff. So we're going to talk about, right, the, all the things that we love about Christmas today. We're going to talk about those things today, and we're going to dig into the truth. Is that good? Amen. Heavenly Father, would you let the words that come out of my mouth be your words? Lord, would you let them find good soil? God, and may we be a people that bring you glory in everything that we do and say. Holy Spirit, come and have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. How many of y'all were with us whenever we had church in the tent? Or came at any time? Okay, I'm going to tell you a cool story about what happened during that time. So, when we first moved there and put up this big 4,000 square foot tent in the middle of our backyard and started having church there. Right off the bat, there were several people, neighbors, that were not happy with that, right? And if if I were someone who was non-religious and there was music and cars parked up, I, I'm not saying that they didn't have reason to. I'm just saying that they were very upset. And one in particular began making lots of phone calls to try and stop what we were doing, okay? And the very first huge obstacle that we ran into was the parking. We had people parking, you guys remember this, in the very beginning, we had people parking three quarters of a mile down the road and walking all the way back up, right? And so parking was a very big deal. And they said, you can't have people parking down the street. So instantly, we just thought, what are we gonna do we were like, we could park people, you know, two miles away at uh, Lipold Park and then maybe bus them in. No, that would be too much money. And, or we could have people carpool. No, that'd be too difficult. And we didn't know what we were going to do. And so now we see these people that don't want us there. We see this parking problem and, uh, and we just ask. We just ask the Lord, please help us. So I go into the county office and one of the guys that's working there He pulls out an old plat of survey. You guys know what a plat of survey is? It shows your boundary lines for your property, right? And he pulls it out and he has this big rectangle circled. And he said, hey, did you know that this was your property? And I said, I said, where is that? And he said, well, this is where the tent is. And this right behind it is your property. It was almost an acre now, I kid you not. Some of you may think, you know, how did you not know? But listen, guys, before this, where he put the tent, there was a tree line. And inside that tree line was all this overgrown stuff. It was trees. And it and it butted up against to a neighbor behind me. And I thought that was all his. And so he said, this is your property. And wouldn't you know it? In one day, we leveled that whole area. And it was exactly what we needed for all the cars in the entire church. And we were able to park right on it. It was our land and we didn't even know. And what's more, the person who was the biggest antagonist of us being there, he said, oh, hey, in addition to that, he has a building that's infringing on your land. And you could ask him to remove it. So you might want to let him know that you guys should probably get along. So here's here's what's crazy. In one moment, our problem of needing a place for parking solved. In one moment, who could be perceived as an enemy. Now, this person wasn't our enemy, right? But there was an enemy trying to stop what we were doing. And in one moment, his power was taken away. Why? Because the person with the records showed me a truth that I did not know. And as soon as he showed me the truth that I did not know, I was instantaneously freed and empowered. This morning, I want us to go back to the records and I want us to look at truth that maybe some of us didn't know. And I want us to instantaneously be freed and empowered. Amen? Let's turn to John 1. It's time. Verse 10. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That word dwelling is tabernacle. We'll get back to that later. What we see is that Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. First command that the Israelites are given as a people in Exodus 12 is to take the lamb in, to receive the lamb, the Passover lamb, receive the Passover lamb. This is the first command that they were given. And it was part of one large command to let these times mark their calendars and to let their lives be based off of these moments. So what it says is let your times, your calendars be judged by these moments, receive the lamb, okay? Okay. So I want to highlight a couple characters and a few details in the nativity scene. Now, what you guys know of the nativity scene, I didn't, I forgot to input the picture on here, but I want you to picture like the typical nativity scene that you would see, right? And all the, the usual suspects. So St. Francis of Assisi, I love that. (laughs) His father was very weak. St. Francis of Assisi, (laughs) Mike likes that one, I know, who is credited with staging the first nativity scene in 1223. So 1223 AD, this is the first time a nativity scene comes into play. You're like, no, nativity scene happened when Jesus was born. Yeah, but we didn't like go and pick different things to celebrate and then start setting it up with precious moments. Uh, The only historical account we have of Francis's nativity scene comes from the book, The Life of St. Francis of Assisi by St. Bonaventure, a Franciscan monk who was born five years before his death. According to Bonaventure's biography, St. Francis got permission from Pope Honorius III to set up a manger with hay and two live animals, an ox and a donkey, in a cave in the Italian village of Grechio, which I wonder if that was the Greco's. He then invited the villagers to come gaze upon the scene while he preached about the babe of Bethlehem. Francis was supposedly so overcome by emotion that he couldn't say, Jesus. Bonaventure also claims that the hay used by Francis miraculously acquired the power to cure local cattle diseases and pestilences. So they grab some of this hay and they go around and they're healing things. Where'd this hay come from? From a nativity scene. Done by St. Francis. Oh, word spreads, right? Nativity scene. Let's go to um, Luke chapter 2. So there were two major convergences of groups of people that came to Jesus. When he was a child. One group was the shepherds. Now, most of us, when we picture the shepherds, right, if it's ever redone in like a very modern way, if you go to like a play or something like that, they're usually portrayed as like lowly, poor, insignificant. Um, these group of people came to give witness to Jesus's birth when he was born in the manger. An angel appears to him, right, and says, Peace. Glad tidings, right? Don't be afraid, right? The the shepherds receive this message because they're already in Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem means bet, house, lechem, bread, house of bread, right? Many of you have heard this. Jesus, the bread of life, is born into Bethlehem, the house of bread, okay? So he comes, and the shepherds who are watching over the flocks by night come and visit him. Now, right off the bat, How many of you guys know that lambs aren't just born all year round? They're born during one time because the the sheep need to eat lots of green grass for their milk. Right. And so lambs, the lambing season is in March, April. Okay, that's when they would be watching for the lambs to come and the sheep would be able to eat green grass. So these shepherds are not just any shepherds either. They're Levitical shepherds. OK, so they're not just random people that just watch sheep. They're of the tribe of Levi. And they're at a specific place called the Migdal Eater. Now, the Migdal Eater is a specific place where lambs that would be used in the temple sacrifices for Passover would be born. Let me show you guys. Uh, go to Micah 4.8 real quick. Keep your finger in Luke 2. The Lord's plan. You can see Micah 4, 8. And it says, As for you, O watchtower of the flock. Those words in Hebrew are migdal eater. This is a specific place in Bethlehem. As for you, O watchtower of the flock, O stronghold of the daughter of Zion, the former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to the daughter of Jerusalem. So now these shepherds, are Levitical shepherds watching for Passover lambs. Because according to Exodus 12, Passover lambs had to be a year old, right? Now, much of this message today is pulled from uh, a message that Jonathan Kahn has taken from several different things, uh, books that preceded this. But uh, much of it also, maybe to some of your surprise, is from a message from John MacArthur, from 1978. A sermon that he did. Yeah. I, I think he still hated charismatics back then too. But the man is very smart. So he had some really good stuff. I don't think he hates charismatics. I think he wishes that we would get saved. <laughs> it just means gifts. Charism, it just means gifts. Anyways, move on. All right. So we have the Migdal Eater prophesied about in Micah 4.8 that the kingship would return to, to the Migdal Eater, which is in Bethlehem. So now these angels come to these Levitical shepherds in Bethlehem that are at the Migdal Eater. And they say, again, verse eight, there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. Why were they watching? In case a, a, a lamb was born. They wanted to make sure they didn't miss the lamb. What would they do with the lamb when it was born? They would wrap it in swaddling clothes. They really would. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news or glad tidings of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, Bethlehem, a savior has been born to you. He is Christ, the Lord or Messiah. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on the earth. Peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So now, who is going to give witness that Jesus, as John identifies, the Passover lamb, who is going to give witness that Jesus had come into the world? The Levitical shepherds that were watching for Passover lambs. They're in Bethlehem at the Migdal Eater, the watchtower, waiting one day as the prophet Micah prophesied, waiting for one day the kingship to be restored. And so these Levitical shepherds take off running and they go see the new king born in a manger, lying in the same stuff they would have wrapped these little lambs in. Let's go to Exodus 40. Actually, go to Exodus 12. I'll save 40 for a little bit. (coughs) Let's look in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb. This is where that first command is given. Each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. Okay? We see that in... Verse five, look at this. The animals you choose must be year old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. So what day do they take the lambs? The 10th, four days before they'll slaughter them. Fast forward to Palm Sunday. Okay. This idea Of Jesus coming in and being accepted by his people. They come in and what do they say? Hosanna. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What's happening? They're receiving the lamb. They do it on the exact day. On the 10th of the month. What was the point of that? The point of receiving the lamb was that you would fall in love with him. You would identify that this lamb was good was without defect, was without spot or blemish. And once it was proven that this lamb was worthy, you would sacrifice the lamb on Passover. This is exactly what happened to Jesus. He was received in on the 10th, right? Forget about Palm Sunday for a second. He was received in on the 10th. He fulfilled that day. The people took him in. How crazy is it that so soon thereafter, they would crucify him? But what we see is that they did take him in. Amazing how the Lord worked that out, isn't it? But what we see is that they wanted in Exodus 12, he wanted for the first day, 10 days before they would take him in, he wanted for the first day to be their first day, first month. Not Rosh Hashanah, that's a civic new year, but their spiritual new year to be. On the 1st of Nisan. Okay. Now for us that falls in the March-April time period. But for them this is right when their new year happens. And 14 days later Passover happens. What I want to propose to you this morning is that Jesus is born on Nisan 1. Is born at the beginning of the year. The head of the year. Okay. This is something that it's not. This is not. Just my opinion. These are things that people have looked into, and so I'm, I'm giving you that beforehand so that you can see as we get there, you can see um you can see how we progress. Uh let's go to Luke 224. You guys are in Luke Two? <coughs> Forgive me. <coughs> so we see that Jesus, when he was presented at the temple. On the eighth day when they came to circumcise him. We see that Mary was offering a sacrifice for purification. And look at verse 24. And to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what it is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of doves or two young pigeons. Y'all know that Mary and Joseph offered two young doves or two young pigeons for purification. Did you know that this showed how poor they were? Go back to Leviticus 12. Just keep your finger in Luke for a second. Go back to Leviticus 12. Purification after childbirth. Okay. What we see is that what she was supposed to bring. If she could afford it. Was a lamb. You see this in verse 8. If she cannot afford a lamb. She is to bring two doves or two young pigeons. One for a burnt offering. And the other for a sin offering. In this way the priest will make atonement for her. And she will be clean. So we see from this that they were obeying the law. And we see too that they were poor. So Mary and Joseph are poor. And they come in with this sacrifice. Now this is going to matter a little bit later. But I want to tell you guys for a second. As we pause on that. I want to tell you guys about the Magi. For a second. So who are the Magi? Because they show up and. Oftentimes people, I think people have named them like Balthazar and Malkior and a few other names. I don't know, but, and they, they bring what, what gifts do they bring? Gold, frankincense and myrrh, right? So gold, frankincense and myrrh. And we see that a lot of people think that there's three of them because there's three gifts. So one brings gold, one brings frankincense and one brings myrrh. I want to tell you that these magi were actually, it's almost like Lord of the Rings. These guys, they just exist from like the beginning And they just endure through all these civilizations. Right. So what are the four major empires? Babylonian Empire, Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire and the Roman Empire. These are what are identified in Daniel. He tells of these empires that will come. So these four major empires are there. Well, I want to show that the Magi were actually there before the Babylonian Empire during it. After it into the Medo-Persian Empire. And then they're still there when Jesus comes. It's this group of people that just endure throughout all these ages. And they just have this like super, like people respect them. They have power. They have authority. They're able to decide who's going to be king in different places. And they just endure. And so I want to tell you a little bit about them. So just exactly who are these kings that show up at the birth of Christ? Uh, So they came from the Persian Parthian Empire east of Palestine, the great eastern area, the area once ruled by the Babylonian Empire, followed up by the Medo-Persian Empire. And they really were descendants of the Persians, the Medes and the Persians. So these are the people that you see there with Jesus. We're going to go to Matthew 2. We're going to see that obviously it was sometime after his birth, right? But we're giving you a little bit of background here. So the Magi were a tribe of people from a part of the world that was about 1,000 miles away from Bethlehem. So by the time the Magi get there, they've traveled about 1,000 miles to get to Jesus. Uh, they were unusually capable and gifted people, and they had risen to great leadership in the Middle East. At the time of the birth of Christ, they were the ruling body in that part of the world, in the Parthian Persian Empire. Now, what you might think is, I thought Rome was the great empire. Well, Rome was over here in Europe. Bethlehem and Israel represented this middle buffer zone. And then way far out of Rome's reach, Rome still had influence over here, was this Parthian Persian empire that existed around the same time. And they were so far away that even though Rome controlled most of the known world, they still existed through this. So anyways, let me keep going. They had ascended to the highest levels in terms of political power. They had known that power ever since the Medo-Persian Empire. The Magi had been around since Daniel. In fact, when the Jews were taken captive into Babylon and stayed uh, for the time of the Babylonian Empire and into the Medo-Persian Empire, these Magi were greatly influenced by those Jews, many devout Jews, and no doubt Daniel himself, who in his own prophecy is said to be the chief over the Magi. No doubt he influenced them greatly. So they had come to understand that there was a coming of a great king to that part of the world. They no doubt were familiar with Daniel's prophecy and with the teaching of others of the people of Israel. So let me me break that down for just a second. So we're about to read in Daniel these Magi that are there. And you see Nebuchadnezzar trying to get them to interpret the dreams in the beginning right? The astrologers and the magicians, the wise men. These are the Magi. And so what you see is Daniel is lifted above them. Daniel is given prominence above these Magi. That's a huge deal because these guys were the most wise, prominent, powerful, authoritative people, which is why Nebuchadnezzar had them sitting on his council. Okay. So stick with me here as, as, as we journey through this just a little bit further. They were the ruling people. They were so powerful by the time of Christ that nobody could ascend to the throne in that part of the world unless they were appointed by Magi. So Magi were literally called by historians, kingmakers. They were ruling people. They appointed the kings. In fact, they're called kingmakers by historians. They controlled also the judicial office. We learn from Esther, and we're going to go there in just a second, That the royal judges in the court were appointed by the Magi. Now, by the time Esther's on the throne, we see this is the Medo Persian. This is where Xerxes and Darius and all these characters come into play. Uh, They appointed the kings, they appointed the judges, they dominated that culture in terms of authority. They had vast knowledge of astronomy, astrology, natural history, architecture, and agriculture. They had a religion of their own, they were from a people. And their religion was monotheistic. They believed in the conflict of good and evil. They believed in a hereditary priesthood, blood sacrifices, supernatural revelation, and even believed in prophecy. So they had much in common with the teaching of the Old Testament. Remember, we're talking about the Magi here. And perhaps that gave them an ear for what Daniel was talking about. Now, at the time of Jesus' birth, they really had wrapped up the control in the Middle Eastern Empire. Their great enemy was Rome. They had fought against Rome in 63 B.C., 55 B.C., and 40 B.C., and they would like to have power over Rome. One of the things that they wanted back was the land of Palestine. Interesting how much conflict has always occurred around that land. And so when the prospect of a great king rising in the Middle East came about, they were very anxious to come and see that king because they had a king, and his name was Phrates fourth, and he was the king over the Parthian Persian Empire. Right before Jesus was born, he was deposed. Which means that he was taken out of office. He was removed from office. And so they had a seat available for a king. And what they were looking for is someone that might be able to come along and help free them from the power of the empire of Rome. Does that sound familiar? So here are the Israelites Longing to be freed from the controlling power of the Roman Empire, the Magi who represent the Parthian Persian Empire traveling a thousand miles to come and see this king that they've been foretold of for centuries. I'll tell you how we get to that place in just a second. But they're both both people groups are longing to be delivered from the oppressive enemy. Let's go to Matthew 2. Verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, what does your word say? It is next. Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, you want to know who knew who the Magi were? Herod. He knew who they were. Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. And by the way, it wasn't three of them. They actually say it was like a Calvary that came in. They were looking to anoint a new king. They were looking for someone that could lead them into glory again. Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, they also knew Israel's position, too, being oppressed by Rome. So they actually thought that they would have friends there. But you know who wouldn't be their friend? Herod. Why? And asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? That's Herod's title. Herod's title is supposed to be king of the Jews. In fact, in 37 BC, he fought long and hard for three years to finally get that title, king of the Jews. Herod was appointed by Caesar from Rome to rule over the Jews. And all he had to do was keep the peace. And so Herod had fought long and hard for the king of the Jews title. And now here come these powerful king from the east. And they come to Herod and his general had recently died and many of his men were off to war. And so Herod in many ways is a sitting duck here in Bethlehem during this time. And so these magi come and they say, where is the one born king of the Jews? And listen to what it says next that he did. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. That word disturbed there is like violently shaking. Herod himself was shaking when they came and asked him, where is the one born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, why were they looking for a star in the east? Let's go to... Let's start back, and I'll give you a little bit of history on the wise men. Go to Jeremiah 39. Hey, you know what I was thinking about? Chelsea, Jody, Hannah, and Joy are all pregnant right now, and they're all worship leaders. And I thought, hey, that's pretty awesome. It's like we've got some beautiful things in store. Danielle, can you sing? Is that, can, you, can you lead worship? Yeah. This is how Jerusalem was taken. Look at this in verse one. In the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month, <clears throat> Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army and laid siege to it. And on the ninth day of the fourth month of Zedekiah's eleventh year, the city wall was broken through. Watch this. Then all the officials of the king of Babylon came and took seats in the middle gate. Now, a lot of times we read over this stuff and we don't even think about it. This idea of who were Nebuchadnezzar's officials? How did he get officials? We just take that for granted. Like officials. Who are these people? Just people that had been with them like David? This guy, Nergal-Sherazer. Of Samgar. I want to tell you, he did not get promoted because of his name. <laughs> Nergal Sherazar of Samgar. But his, the meaning of it is really cool. It means prince of fire. Chief soothsayer. Okay. So this is who he was. Nergal Sherazar of Samgar. This guy was a magi. He was with Nebuchadnezzar when he broke down the walls and went in to take Judah captive. A chief officer, Nergal Sherazar, a high official, and all the other officials of the king of Babylon. When Zedekiah, king of Judah, and all the soldiers saw them, they fled. Why? Because when these dudes come into your city, you better flee. These were bad dudes. They were powerful. These were officials that came with Nebuchadnezzar and his army, and they sat down in the place. Why? Because they had determined that it was time... To lay, or to lay waste this city. And they left the city at night. By way of the king's garden. Through the gate between the two walls. And headed toward the Arabah. Look at Daniel 2. Look at verse 10. So we see that Nebuchadnezzar. The same Nebuchadnezzar that overthrew. Judah. And Jerusalem. And Zedekiah. Has a dream. So now at this point, all of Israel is held captive now in Babylon. And we see in verse 10, as Nebuchadnezzar is trying to get these guys who are supposed to know astronomy, astrology, and have all the wisdom to interpret dreams and to know what's going to happen in the future. He comes to them and he tells them, tell me what my dream means. And in verse 10, the astrologers answered the king. There is not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. Why? Because if they couldn't do it, nobody could do it. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. The word magician there actually means astrologer. The word enchanter actually means necromancer. And the word astrologer there actually means wise man. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal to the king except the gods, and they do not live among men. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon... So this is a very important moment. Why? Because it's possible that in this moment, these dudes might get wiped out. These guys that have existed for so long with all this power and all this authority. But who comes along to save them? Daniel. Daniel comes along to save the Magi. In fact, after he interprets the king's dream, look at Daniel 4. He interprets the king's dream and the king gives him a high position of authority. And look at verse eight. Nebuchadnezzar has another dream. And who does he call on to interpret it? Daniel. Finally, Daniel came into my presence and I told him the dream. He is called Belteshazzar after the name of my God and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said, Belteshazzar, what? Chief of the magicians. Chief of the magi. I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream. Interpret it. Now look at Daniel five. Just a few more of these. Verse 11. So this is now after Nebuchadnezzar. This is Daniel still enduring with another ruler. On the throne. Look in verse 11 says there is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, I say, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters and astrologers and diviners. This man, Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel is still now prominent with another ruler on the throne. The Magi are still enduring. Go to Esther. What we know is that the order in our Bibles is not necessarily chronologically correct in many of our Bibles, right? Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. We'll go to chapter 1, verse 13. So, this is now an empire after Babylon. Okay? <clears throat> and what we see is that the Medo Persian Empire is now in full effect. Well, this is great because the Magi are actually from this area. So, they endure through it. But look at verse 13. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law, and justice. I want to tell you that the Magi also wrote out laws in the same way that Christianity or Judaism can go back to the law that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai, and that law governed the people. The Magi also had laws that governed the people. And so the king would consult with those laws. Experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times. These again, Magi. And were closest to the king. He had him on his courts. He had them on his courts: Karshana, Shethar, Admetha, Tarshish, Maris, Marsena, and Memekon, the seven nobles of Persia and Media who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. I want to tell you some prophecies that the Magi would have had access to, because think about this: Daniel wasn't just one of the magi, he became chief. Of the Magi. Now, these men were learned men with access to all the information that Babylon had during this time. Why? Because they were the trusted nobles and officials. So, Daniel, who we see, gives prophecies about the coming Messiah. Daniel imparts countdowns and prophecies from his scriptures into these men. He tells them about the Torah, he tells them about the prophets. Up until this time, and he gives them the information about the coming king. And he tells them things like numbers 2417 turn there real quick. These are prophecies that the Magi during the time of Babylon, when Daniel was chief over them, these are prophecies that Daniel would have given him. Or given them that they could pass down. Look at verse 17 in chapter 24. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the heads of Moab, the skulls of all the sons of Sheth. Edom will be conquered. Sarah, his enemy will be conquered, but Israel will go strong. A ruler will come out of Egypt and